and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Ellen Weber. And what we're doing today is going to tell you the best and the brightest articles from the EMJ's April edition. This is an edition all about error. It's fantastic stuff. There's some amazing writers in here, some amazing articles. And working as an emergency physician, I think it's going to be a really important set of articles, which is going to change the way that you think and perhaps even practice in emergency medicine. So, Ellen, you were the editor-in-chief. You did the primary survey this month. What brought you to put together an article around error? Well, it actually came because of submissions we had. We had a number of submissions in the last year about error. People wanted to talk about error. And what was so fascinating about these um, articles was that they weren't the usual, oh, you know, let's blame the system kind of error discussions. They were truly about diagnostic error. They were about the kinds of things that we internally in our brains have to control. And so I thought it was a really fresh take. And what was so interesting is that we had several articles from various different sources coming in on the same theme. I think people are very concerned about making a mistake. And I think they wanted to talk about how we can get better at making decisions. I think it's been really interesting across a number of conferences over the last two years as well. I think we've seen it come into a discussion, a very broad discussion in emergency medicine about improving the care of our patients by looking at error, but in a slightly different way. I think if you went back many years, people would say, you know, well, stuff happens. And, you know, we work in a risky business and, you know, occasionally things go wrong. And there is some truth in that. But I think there's a much more analytical approach coming out now and a much more scientific approach to understanding not just what happens, but why it happens. Exactly. You know, I think the the first thing you mentioned about, well, we work in a dangerous situation. Well, we need to adapt to that. We need to be able to work in that situation safely. So the fact that we say, oh, we were busy or the system didn't work, well, we need to fix the system. And we also need to learn how to control our own thinking, even under the most busy circumstances, under interruptions, under stress. We really have to learn how to do that. And the fact is also that there are many times we're not stressed and that busy. We're just not thinking clearly. Maybe we're tired or we're using all of those uh, cognitive errors that uh, that we've learned about. We're, we're becoming too comfortable in our own ways, and we're not challenging our own thoughts about how we look at our patients. I think another aspect of that is simply we become so reliant on testing that we don't want to think. We, we sort of think, well, if I think that's not as good as if I go ahead and get a test which will tell me the right answer. Um, and I think one of the article that pulls mu- much of this together in our journal this month is the editorial by Pat Kroskery, who's a wonderful thinker, a psychologist, who's written a lot about uh, diagnostic thinking and talks about something very important called cognitive debiasing, which I'm not going to try to describe here other than to say we need to be aware and we need to have methods to keep ourselves from making all those cognitive errors that tend to occur simply because we're human beings. So there's quite a lot of work out there that says that human beings make errors, and that's okay. That's just part of being human. And I think Pat Crosscurry expands on that and says, well, that's if you just take it there, then that's it's almost it's almost giving up. 
What we need to do is accept that that's the case and then build in processes into our practice which allow us to accept that error takes place but to put other elements in place so that we catch those errors. So that's his cognitive debiasing, which I thought, was, I thought was fascinating. It was a much more positive message than I've heard in other prior papers around error. Yes, exactly. And in fact, in our, our uh, journal this, this month, in the issue, we don't just have articles about error. We actually have articles about how to prevent error. And among those are two articles on things you can do in your practice to just be more deliberate. One of them was a very simple study in which they um, created a template for, for charting on facial injuries. Now, facial injuries are one of these things that are to many people a mystery. When you get a lecture on it, people are talking about bones and muscles and various compartments, and it's very difficult to apply that to practice. And what these authors did is they just created a check, basically a checklist of you know what you need to look at, and as a result, the um, the the history and the physicals of patients were much clearer and allowed people to think more about the differential diagnosis than if they just said, oh, there was bruising, you know, over the uh, you know the mandible. So so we we do have ways we can do this. We have to adapt them to our practice. Um, and we just have to figure out, you know, what's how we can do this without a tremendous expenditure of of unnecessary energy. So that's a paper which really looks at ensuring that we don't miss aspects of our analysis of the patient. And in particular, it did have quite a theme around the clinical assessment of the patient and the history, which appears as another problem in many of the other papers we talk about in the journal this month, where some of the it's the basics sometimes which are missed, which cause problems. Exactly. The two, there are two articles that we have that analyzed large numbers of errors in their departments. And one was specifically on abdominal pain, and the other one looked at physician-reported errors. And in both of those cases, they talked about the physician-patient encounter, history-taking, and simple things like failure to follow up on tests you had ordered. So these are not, as I say, rocket science. Uh, this is not necessarily being William Osler and having to think of, you know, the most exotic differential diagnosis. It's really about taking a good history and, and not relying on testing, uh, not relying on sort of the first thing that comes to your mind, although as you do get more experience, that does, that does play into it. it. It really is about, you know, spending some time with the patient. And I, this is, you know, I'm sort of an old-fashioned gal. And uh, I sit down with patients and I let them tell me my, their story for a couple of minutes. So, so both of those studies are really very key in talking about how we really do just have to get back to the basics of what we learned in medical school. You're absolutely right. And I think there's some games that people can play if they don't believe these things, is to just go in and watch one of your colleagues take a history from a patient and time how long it is before they interrupt the patient's story. And I, I've read papers on this, but I think the number is around about 11 seconds. It's usually in sentence number two by the time people go, oh, I've got something I want to ask you. And actually listening to the patient, there could be some dramatic and really important information there. And I thought these papers really illustrated to us something which didn't come out in the early studies around error when people did focus on technical matters. When you're looking in more detail about abdominal pain and general emergency medicine problems, which are the papers by Okafa and Medford Davis this month, I think what they've 
been able to pull out is it's the process of thinking, the cognitive process, which makes a difference. And for us in emergency medicine, it's not always just about what we do at the end, about whether or not you decided to do that CT. It's the process that you've used to get there. And it's quite possible that people can make very poor judgments and still get the right outcome. But unless we analyse that and think about it and have the right debiasing strategies, we can only get away with that for so long and eventually that will cause significant harm and error. So we really do need to think not just about what we're doing at the end, but how we get there, the journey, and particularly the thinking journey of how we get to our decisions. Exactly. I think one of the points that was brought out was that in, in, play, in situations where errors were made, the differential diagnosis didn't even include the correct diagnosis. So that suggests, again, getting back to that basics of let's think about everything this could be. Let's not just jump to conclusions and let's not just, you know, look in one place. And I know that's very hard to do in a busy department, but we do have to realize that this is a big source of our errors. And instead of spending lots of money and waiting for CAT scans to come back, we could be using that time by just thinking outside the box, shall we say, and using some of the cognitive debiasing strategies to really think about, is there something I'm missing? Music to my ears. I mean, it's something we've been working on a lot um, in Manchester, and I think we should see, and we should really start thinking about getting our trainees and our colleagues to read these kind of papers. I think there's an awful lot in here which can really change the way that we think about emergency medicine. Yes. And were there any other papers in here that you particularly wanted to highlight this month? Well, first of all, I, I think the uh, paper that is by Josh Broder and colleagues uh, about the uh, error with the Heimlich valve is a fascinating just case history, anatomy of an error that brings in all of the forces of what happens in our emergency departments when we are trying to take care of sick people. It brings in the pressures to just keep going even though you're uncertain the possibility of doing procedures without supervision, the fact that we work with unfamiliar equipment that sometimes is changed at the drop of the hat, and that we need to really be able to say, let's just put a, a break on this and let's stop what we're doing and think about whether we have time to, to do this a better way. And, and I think that it's, it really is an anatomy of an error to look at that paper and think about how you might have responded as, as a practitioner in the same situation as this poor intern who was trying to put in a Heimlich valve for, for a patient with a pneumothorax. And I think the other paper that people really ought to be reading is actually a, a, a new concept in our, in our uh, issue, which is actually called Concepts, and it's about the routine reporting of laboratory measurements and the fact that we don't report the fact that, just like everything else we do, there is measurement uncertainty in laboratory results, and we don't report those. And the authors of that article, uh, Martin White and Royce Vincent, make a very good point that if you saw that measurement uncertainty, perhaps it would make you realize that the tests are no more exact than our brains. And they suggest that that will get us back to the idea of thinking about the diagnosis and realizing that everything is a bit uncertain and we just have to make the best judgments we can, but we shouldn't necessarily be leaning too far on tests 
and giving up on all of the education and thinking processes we've learned in the, you know, over the course of our uh, experience as physicians. So clearly that you have to interpret any test in light of the patient, but this takes us one step further and we actually have to interpret the test in light of the test. Would that be a fair summary? Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the test says, oh, it's abnormal, but if you look at the measurement of error, maybe it's not that abnormal. It's very similar to when we talk about statistics and confidence intervals that, uh, you know, it is, it's not an exact science, and we also know there's always lab error, but in this case, it really is a way to say, you know, there's, there's room here for judgment. There is room for judgment, but for us, when I've explored these concepts in the past with people, they go, oh, you know, it's, it's really quite complex to work out what's going on here, and it makes it all, everything, that could be adjusted and that could be adjusted. How do we take this on board? Well, my reply and it's not going to please that many people, is diagnostics is what we do. Diagnostics is the core skill of emergency physicians, and particularly handling uncertainty and, you know, at the extremes, making time-critical information-like decisions. That is our area of expertise, and perhaps we should be really, really well-versed in that and really understand the nature of the information that we're using so we can improve that level of decision-making. I completely agree with you, Simon. It, it is our job. It is the main job that we do is to make a diagnosis. Um, and I think we do need to spend more time on it and uh, pay attention to all of the literature that's out there about how we can improve that. And I think we also have to recognize, as we said at the beginning, we're humans, we're fallible. And so when we communicate with patients, we need to be able to say, this is what I think, this is what the evidence suggests. But, but really, I think in most cases, we, we're never 100% sure. And we need to admit that, that this is a, you know, that this is a matter of judgment and thinking and bringing together the evidence. And it's not necessarily a yes or no. So it's an amazing journalist month. There's a huge amount of stuff in here. We've got amazing authors. And particularly, I think the Pat Cross-Kerry editorial is something that everybody must read if you're working in emergency medicine. I think if you read this and then don't go on to want to read other stuff, then maybe... Maybe you need to look at a different specialty. I don't know. It's it's really fascinating stuff. And the, the illustrative papers that we've got running alongside that really, really make that clear. The only thing I, I sort of was reading when I was going through this was we do talk about error, but actually we can flip that round and say that everything in this journal this month about error is actually an opportunity to improve care for everybody. It's not just about when things go terribly wrong. It's about upping the game for all diagnostics and all decision-making in the emergency department. So I think there's a huge amount of positivity in here. And as I say, I do particularly like the way that Pat Crosscarry has moved it away from, oh gosh, we're just looking at terrible things, but actually we're looking at things which are going to improve care. Yes. And I think they're going to, in the long run, make our jobs uh, easier and more satisfying because we will have ways to deal with this uncertainty and this and this fear of error, which I think is the reason that we are also interested in reading papers on on what other people have have encountered. One of the things I've said many times, and I want to reiterate, is I think it's fascinating that we spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of our time if you think back over my career, learning how to do something like a cricothyroidotomy, which is an incredibly rare experience. It's really important. I'm not saying don't do it, but it's rare. And yet if I add up the number of hours where somebody has specifically taken me and taught me and helped me learn in a formal setting about cognitive error, cognitive bias, debiasing strategies, decision-making and diagnostics, it's probably less 
Yet I do that every single day with virtually every single patient that I see. And I just say that out there to say, you know what, maybe we got the balance a bit wrong here. I completely agree. And again, as uh, Pat Crossbury writes in his editorial, that the Krebs cycle still remains on many uh, medical school entrance exams. And yet we don't ask people about how they make decisions. I'm so glad you're not going to ask me about the Krebs cycle. <laughs> no, don't. I just brought that up. Believe me, I don't remember it either, Simon. That's very good. I know that it's a circle is what I remember. That's why it's called a cycle. Yeah, that's that's where I think we should better leave the Krebs cycle. Um, Ellen, anything else you want to add to listeners before we disappear? No, I just think that they will find this a really fascinating issue. I urge them to read every word of it. And I think they will probably, I hope they will send in letters and uh, others, other experiences that they've had regarding these kinds of problems. I think we need more papers on this and I welcome I welcome more submissions on the issue. I think that's a great place to end. Please remember, follow the blog, follow the podcasts, follow the journal, and we do really genuinely want to hear what people think. And if you've got an interest in this area and you're doing your own research, then please consider the EMJ. We, it's something which we really do value. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simon. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you.